Amen. Amen. Good morning, family of God. Good morning. You may be seated. And a special welcome to all mothers this morning. Praise God for you. Let's have a hand for our mothers. I know it's a secular holiday, but it's a good one. I was just up fishing with my dad in Wisconsin, and we were just grieving afresh for the loss of his mother, who passed away about a year and a half ago, just a precious woman. And it's just a loss like no other um, to see my dad lose his mother and, uh, and to see um, uh, one of the, these precious women in my family uh, pass. It, it just reminds you how important mothers are, what a contribution uh, they make. And so we're so thankful for all our mothers, and we pray for you today. We celebrate you today, and we're not shy about that. Amen? Amen. All right, well, you may know that Children's Church is taking a break during the month of May. There is still nursery uh, for children aged 0 to 5 if you would like to make use of it. Um, but, uh, but the point is um, we have to adjust our preaching a bit, um, giving shorter kind of whole family homilies in contrast to the usual fare. And all of this sounds great to me. Uh, I support it 100%. Uh, the only problem is my, my text for today. <laughs> How do you give a family-friendly homily about the woman caught in adultery? I mean, last week, John had Heal the World, and this week, I have Billie Jean. Is there some kind of hazing going on just because I went on a fishing trip? I think, pray with me this morning, okay? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open up your word, you would speak the gospel afresh to us. Lord, remind us not only that we are sinners, but how great and vast and good your mercies are toward us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Show us new truths. Show us new things about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I guess a good place to start is um, like a workable definition of adultery. Uh, when Pastor John and I were in seminary, we uh, partnered together with some of the other dads at the seminary and uh, we, uh, every Friday, would teach our kids uh, through the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments, the so-called three pillars of catechesis. Uh, and when we got to the Ten Commandments and to the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, we explained it to them this way. At the time, our kids were like between the ages of four and six. We said, God says we're not allowed to be romantic with other people's husbands and wives. Okay, so that seemed to work pretty well, so we'll roll with that this morning, okay? <laughs> so our passage this morning is all about a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, caught in the very act, don't ask me how, of being super romantic, we, we could say, with the husband of another woman. Now, can you imagine that? Some other woman treating your dad like she's married to him. 
instead of your mom. That's pretty bad. And we have to understand how bad it was in order to understand how great the mercy that Jesus showed to her. Who knows, it might have been the worst thing that this woman had ever done in her whole life. And she was caught right in the act and dragged before the feet of the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine the shame she must have felt? Our gospel lesson says that the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Now, we are all sinners, right? Right? Like adults and kids alike. So it shouldn't be hard for us to put ourselves in this woman's shoes. But let's try, as uncomfortable as it may be. Let's close our eyes for a moment. And I want you to think of a time when you did something that you felt really ashamed of. Maybe it was something you did in secret or with a friend and thought your parents would never find out about. Do you have things like that in your past? I know I do. Let your mind return to that. Now imagine that right as you were in the act of doing this sneaky thing, watching something you were not allowed to watch, doing something you were not supposed to do, telling a lie about someone who's never hurt you, taking something that didn't belong to you and hiding it in your pocket. Imagine that at that very moment, someone whips the door open and sees you, hears you, and they grab you by the wrist and drag you in front of all your family and neighbors and strangers and tell everyone exactly what you did. Now, wouldn't your heart sink to your stomachs? Wouldn't you just want to curl up in a ball and die? Okay, open your eyes if you haven't done so yet. And I want to ask you one final question. What if you were caught in the act and you were brought right to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pause and I want you to look up in your imagination and imagine the look on Jesus' face. Maybe you have this idea about the Lord Jesus that if he could see you, if he could see what you did, he would scowl. He would condemn you. Maybe that's what you tend to think about Jesus in your mind. But I think you can switch yourself out with this woman and ask, is that the Jesus that we find in this passage? No, not at all. Instead, he responds to the woman with gentleness and wisdom and mercy. And since Jesus never changes, we know that's exactly how he would respond to us. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a relief? Isn't that good news? Okay, so that's just the intro to help us put ourselves in this woman's shoes. But let's dig a little deeper into the story. Please grab a pew Bible and turn to me, if you would, to John 8. It's on page 894. 
And as you turn there, you'll see a note at the top of the page that the earliest manuscripts do not include this story. And I could go on a big cul-de-sac and talk to you about that, but if you have any questions, just come ask me about that after service, okay? Because I'd love to talk. But there's so much that we could say about this beautiful passage, and I don't want, I don't want that to get lost. This is a gospel-rich passage. And for the sake of our time this morning, I want us to focus in on two of the most interesting points. The first is, what is the test that the scribes and the Pharisees have for Jesus? And how does he get out of their trap? So that's the first one, okay? Second, why does Jesus write with his finger on the ground? Right now, I think both of these questions really jump out of this story. Right, so the scribes and Pharisees place the woman in the midst of the people, and picking back up in the middle of verse 4, they say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Now, to stone someone, just to be clear, was to put them to death, to give them the death penalty by having everyone in the community throw stones at them together. And this is what they wanted Jesus to do to this woman, to start the process of stoning her. But verse 6 says, This they said to test him. You see that? That they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, in what sense were the scribes and Pharisees trying to test Jesus here? Well, First, they were testing to see if they could get Jesus to, like, stop being the person that everyone knew him to be. And second, they were testing to see if he would keep the law of Moses. Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Is he going to fulfill the law? Now, how many of you have ever made pancakes? Raise your hand. All right, I got a picture of pancakes. This is going to make you hungry, all right? <laughs> Boom. Now, I have a question. What are the main ingredients in pancakes? Just call them out. Yes. You know? What are the main ingredients? Flour, milk, eggs. We're, we're pretty good here. Pancake mix, <laughs> which is basically flour and sugar, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anything else we're missing? Yeah. Syrup, yeah, that's kind of like you put it on afterward, it would be missing. Yeah, yeah. Butter, yeah, that's right. Butter goes in it and on top of it. Just want to make that clear. Now, uh, if you took away uh, any of these ingredients, or at least the main ingredients, right, the pancakes would no longer taste like pancakes. If you took away the flour, let's say, if you took away the milk, they would no longer be pancakes. Well, in a similar way, uh, St. Augustine said that there are three things we know about Jesus, that he was truthful, gentle, and just. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is truthful, gentle, and just? Jesus is truthful, gentle, and All right, now just means that he was fair, okay? And so the Pharisees were testing Jesus to see if they could somehow change the ingredients on that recipe that makes Jesus who he is, to get him to compromise on at least one of the three main ingredients. Likewise, another famous saint, Thomas Aquinas, says that the Pharisees were testing Jesus on two points. He, he sees two main ingredients here, justice and mercy. 
But Jesus preserved both in his answer, he says. In other words, he was, was, he, was he going to choose mercy at the expense of justice or justice at the expense of mercy? That's what the Pharisees were trying to get him to do. If Jesus chose to have mercy on the woman, it seems like he would have to set aside justice or fairness because what she did was truly wrong and deserved to be punished, right? On the other hand, if Jesus decided to stone the woman, the punishment might be fair, but it would also seem like he was setting aside that other main ingredient of mercy. Plus, while Jesus indeed would judge the world on the last day, will judge the world on the last day, Jesus had said in John 3, 17, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Right? So do you see the predicament that the Pharisees put Jesus in? It would seem that he has to compromise on one or the other, justice or mercy. Right? But the gospel and God's nature never compromises on either. Now, at this point, someone might say, yeah, but aren't the Pharisees just like following the law of Moses? Maybe it's not a test. Maybe they're just like really passionate about God's law. But there are at least three reasons to think that their concern for justice or the law of Moses was actually insincere. So first of all, stoning was not widely practiced at this time. So it's likely that they're referring to a law in Moses that they themselves have not kept in their lives. Indeed, as we will see later during the trial of Jesus, the Jewish leaders were unable to apply the death penalty to Jesus without permission from the Roman government. Second, stoning could only occur in the law after a careful trial. And as Deuteronomy 22, verses 25 through 27, look it up later, clearly explains, sometimes there were reasons why a man could be found guilty and not the woman. All right, so we're not going to go into that right now, but look it up later. And this brings us to the third and most obvious point, namely, if these scribes and Pharisees were so zealous about justice and this woman was literally caught in the act, hello, where is the married man that she was caught in the act with? Why is she the only one being dragged before Jesus for condemnation and not the pair of them together. There's some latent male chauvinism going on in this passage, is there not? As Leviticus 20.10 clearly states, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Now, to be clear, this omission of presenting the man uh, does not excuse the actions of the woman, but it does bring to light the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders and their supposed zeal for the law of Moses that they wanted to see from Jesus. Listen, just as our reading from James says, God's justice shows no partiality, but theirs did. Clearly, they are more concerned about trapping Jesus than they are with honoring God. Is that not plain? That's the, one of the main themes of the Gospel of John. Now, how did Jesus get out of their trap? Because it seems like there's no way out. We'll see in a minute. But first, like the prophets before him, Jesus does something very mysterious here. Everyone is waiting to hear his answer, but verse 6, six continues and says, everyone's waiting what Jesus is going to say. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
And as they continued to ask him, imagine that. He's writing on the ground, and they're like, dude, we, we came here. What, what do you say? The law of Moses says it. Come, you know, what are you, what are you doing down here, right? He stood up and said to them, let he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, so a second time, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, what in the world does writing on the ground have anything to do with everything that's going on here? Well, when I was a kid in the 80s, there was a toy that was really popular called an Etch-a-Sketch. Maybe the kids can tell me, do they still have Etch-a-Sketch today? They still have this? Okay, sweet. It's a good toy. It should stand the test of time. It's basically a screen with some kind of like magnetized sand in it, right? And you use these two circular dials, and you can make, uh, one dial can make the line go up and down. Uh, the other uh, can make the line go side to side. And if you kind of do them both at the same time, you can kind of do a diagonal line, right? And use it, you can use it to draw um, a kind of picture in the sand like this, OK? So check this out. This is, um, you know, shows some of the kinds of shapes and things that you can do on an Etch-a-Sketch. Etch that would definitely take some skill. And once you were done making a picture, uh, what did you have to do to erase it? Right, you, you had to shake it. You had to shake it up. That's all you had to do, and it would erase it, and you could draw a new picture. Now, the pictures that I uh, usually made looked pretty simple, like maybe like one of the items on this picture. But uh, some people got really good at it and could make more complex images like this. OK. Somebody has too much time on their hand. <laughs> but if you ever made something like this, if you ever made something that you were really proud of and you wanted to keep it, what would invariably happen? <laughs> yeah, your, your brother or your sister <laughs> would shake it. <laughs> Not to bring up any past trauma or anything. But. And even if, even if nobody did shake it, someone would inevitably bump it or something, right? Somebody, and, and it would be like, oh, no, it's too messed up. I don't like that. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah. OK, so it's been said that uh, Jesus Christ and Socrates, who um, were arguably the, the, most two in, the two most influential thinkers in human history, were also famous for never having written anything down. The task was left to their disciples, right? Plato in, uh, in the case of Socrates, and the apostles in the case of Jesus Christ. But we see here that this characterization is not entirely true. Because on at least one occasion, the word made flesh did indeed write some words. The only trouble is the tablet was the dust of the earth. So we have no idea what he said. Wouldn't the words of Jesus be precious to future generations? So why would Jesus leave his words in the first century version of an Etch-a-Sketch? Maybe it wasn't about the actual words. Maybe it was more about the action that he was performing. There are different theories as to what Jesus was writing on the earth. Some claim he listed out the specific sins of the scribes and Pharisees. Wouldn't that have been something to see? Some claim that he wrote their names in the sand. 
These are some flimsy guesses, but they are actually rooted in a much more solid reference back to the Old Testament. Will you turn with me to Jeremiah 17? It's on page 645. 645 in your pew Bible. Now, this whole chapter is worthy of a close read, but for now, let's just kind of skim it a bit together. Verse 1 says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, that is, their pagan altars. So, so this chapter begins with this symbolic theme of the sins of God's people being recorded in writing. And skipping down to verses 7 and 8, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. Now, just as a reminder, who was just talking about rivers of living water in John chapter 7? Jesus, right. Verse 9 continues with the famous line, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, our human hearts are not the proper judges of good and evil, right? God is. So verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So God is not the one being put to test. Man is the one being put to the test. And of course, in the case of the woman caught in adultery, we see that Jesus is occupying the space of the divine judge, right? And then in verse 13, this is the crucial text to explain Jesus' mysterious writing in the dust of the earth. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So according to scripture, the righteous will be written in heaven, right? Luke 10.20. But by contrast... Here we see that those who forsake the Lord will be written in the earth. And again, we get a reference to the living water that Jesus just offered to all who would believe in him, which as an aside seems to strengthen the connection with the placement of this story in this place in the Gospel of John. So what's the point? The Anglican commentator Rod Whitaker summarizes Jesus' prophetic message to the Pharisees in this way. He says, the judgment that they suggest Jesus execute on the adulterous woman is in fact the judgment that he visits upon them for their rejection of him, the one who has offered them God's living water. In rejecting Jesus, they are forsaking God and thereby committing a most shameful act. That's what Jesus' prophetic action is communicating to them. It's like a caption underneath this whole interaction, is it not? Now, they might not have caught that, so let's turn back to the more obvious part of the passage in our gospel story where we left off. The scribes and the Pharisees brought the adulterous woman to see Jesus if he would stone her. And again, uh, he wrote in the sand and said to them in verse 7, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, Jesus was saying, if you're so passionate that sinners be punished, how about we have 
the first person who hasn't sinned, the person among you who deserves no punishment, be the first to start us off. Booyah. Turn to your neighbor and say, booyah. <laughs> Jesus trapped them with their own trap. Verse 9 continues. When they heard it, they, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Why would the older ones be the first to leave? Yeah, they would be much more aware that they are sinners, right? And when it says, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Why was Jesus still there? What would that imply? Yeah, Jesus was without sin. He was the only righteous one. He was the only qualified judge, right? He is the Supreme Court. And then in verse 10, we get the most intimate moment in the story. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Can you imagine being there, being a fly on the wall in that moment? He reminds me of the Lord God in asking that question. The Lord likes to ask questions he knows the answer to, doesn't he? Where are you, Adam? <laughs> Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Come on. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that good news? In a few brief words, Jesus takes away her shame and calls her to a new life, a life free from the chains of sin. In this way, Jesus condemns the sin, but not the sinner. It's just like he does on the cross, right? In doing so, he avoids the theological trap that the scribes and the Pharisees had set for him. And here, Whitaker makes a helpful distinction between the absoluteness of the moral law and our own societal application of the law. So the moral law is unchanging because it's rooted in the righteous nature of God. But the juridical law, the way that we punish sin from culture to culture, may depend based on the context, right? So how much more so if the Son of God wants to accomplish His salvation in His first coming and exercise judgment in his second coming. Who are we to question him? He's the potter, we're the clay. And truly, in that sense, against him, him alone, have we sinned. As it says in Psalm 51. Notice that the woman hasn't even repented yet. She hasn't even had time to change her mind or, or mend her ways. But Jesus shows her mercy up front. Turn to your neighbor and says, Jesus shows mercy up front. And now switching places with this woman again, like we did in the beginning, doesn't he want to do the same for all of us? Doesn't this remind you, hold on a second, of what he did for all of us on the cross? 
On the cross, Jesus paid our sin debt up front. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Romans 5, 8, and 10. Isn't that amazing grace? Isn't that glorious good news? This is why Jesus can rightly command us to love our enemies up front. Even while they're still our enemies. That's why he can justly command us to extend forgiveness to others up front. Even those who have not yet repented. Now to be clear, our enemies may never turn. And those we forgive may never come to the point of being willing to receive it. To do so would require the embarrassing work of humbling themselves and admitting that they were wrong which hopefully we've all experienced. Otherwise, the gospel be nullified in our lives. And thus, the scripture says, they would end up forfeiting the grace that could be theirs. That's always a possibility. Perhaps that was even the case with this woman. We don't really know the rest of her story. Perhaps she went away and chose not to leave her life of sin. Would Jesus not have had mercy on her in this moment? Do you remember the story of the ten lepers? Jesus cleansed ten lepers all at once and only one returned to give thanks to God and to prostrate himself at Jesus' feet. And, and that person was a Samaritan. And Jesus said, well, didn't I, didn't I heal ten? Didn't I offer healing to ten? But I think we can be hopeful that this woman's story didn't end that way. Because usually those who are forgiven much love much. So we have good reason to hope that the kindness of the Lord Jesus led her to repentance. And likewise, the mercy that Jesus extended to all of us sinners up front on the cross is an offer that he holds out to us. He's taken away our shame and offered us new life. May we respond rightly to his upfront kindness, putting our faith in his mercy, and walking with newness of life, a life of the Spirit, free from the chains of sin. Will we believe in the cleansing power of the cross? Will we commit ourselves to go and sin no more, walking by the Holy Spirit that he offers us? Make no mistake, beloved. The gospel is about both the cross and the resurrection. It's about forgiveness and walking in newness of life. That's the call that this story extends to us. To put ourselves in the shoes of this adulterous woman, vulnerable at the feet of Jesus, the same Jesus yesterday, today, and forever, who reigns in heaven even now, looking down upon you with eyes of mercy. Let him speak a word over you. This morning, that changes everything. Amen.